Hi, and welcome to Mogul's Interview Series. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and it's my honor to introduce our next guest, Kirsten Gillibrand, United States Senator for New York. Who better to feature on our women's site than a wife, mother, daughter, and friend who uses her platform as senator to passionately advocate for women, workers, students, families, and many more. Senator Gillibrand has made it her personal commitment to end sexual assault in the military and wants more women to run for office and make their voices heard on issues that they care about, which she discusses in her book, Off the Sidelines, Speak Up, be fearless and change your world. We get to hear about all of this and more from her today. Senator Gillibrand, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm delighted to be on your show. We're excited to have you. With all of our guests, I'd like to start at the very beginning. So where were you born? I was born in Albany, New York. Growing up, did you have any aspirations of doing politics? I actually did. I had a grandmother who loved politics. She really inspired me as a young girl. And I remember when I was about seven or eight, sitting with my sister and my cousin, and we were sharing what we wanted to be when we grew up. My cousin said that she wanted to be a flight attendant, and my sister said she wanted to be an actor, and I said I wanted to be a senator. Now, interestingly, I did not know what a U.S. senator was. I knew what a state senator was, so I'm sure I was talking about that. But because of my grandmother, I really did aspire to being a public servant and doing something in politics because it was something she cared so much about and she wanted to make a difference. She organized women to get involved in politics. She thought women's voices were really important and that stuck with me. So she inspired me to at least dream about it. That's amazing. So then what did you study in school? Because if I'm correct, you went to law school, right? And is that a divergence from this dream? I thought it was a good stepping stone. I knew that I could make a difference in people's lives, but I really felt I needed the education to do it well. So I decided to go to law school because my mom was a lawyer, and I liked the way my mom was able to navigate complex legal issues on behalf of others. I love the fact that she would help people buy their first home or adopt a child, and I loved how she was able to help them. My mother was really great because she helped people with any problem they have, and sometimes they couldn't pay her with money, so they'd literally drop a box of vegetables at our doorstep, or they'd give her tickets to the movies for a year. I mean, just crazy things for different clients that she had. But what stuck with me is that she just loved helping people. So I thought if I could go to law school, I could learn how to be a better advocate, learn how to help people, and maybe through that, find my way to public service. Mm. And then after you graduated law school, did you practice or do something else? I did. I went to a big firm here in New York City. I was at a very successful white shoe law firm. I was there for about a year and a half, maybe two years, and then I went off and clerked for a judge came back to the big firm, eventually decided I wasn't realizing my dreams as a corporate lawyer. I wanted to really do something in public service. So I started looking hard for a public service job. I first applied to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern and Eastern Districts of New York. I did not get those jobs. I then decided to apply to some charities. I applied to the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Corporation, the Rockefeller Foundation. I didn't even get a response to those applications. (laughs) Then I met Hillary Clinton through some of the early political work I started to do, and she decided to run for Senate. So I thought, oh, here's my big break. I'm going to work on her campaign. But I had no relevant experience, so I did not get the job. So I was really frustrated as a seventh-year associate at a big law firm that I wasn't doing more with my life, wasn't really helping others in the way I imagined I would. 
I went to a political event and the speaker happened to be Andrew Cuomo and he talked about in his speech why it was important to do public service and why it was important to be a Democrat and being as frustrated as I was at the moment I kind of went up to him afterwards and said well Mr. Secretary I think politics is an insider's game and I don't know how to get from A to B and I don't think public service is something you can easily do. He of course challenged me and said well would you move to Washington? I said of course I'd move to Washington. I had no interest in ever moving to Washington. I was a young single woman in New York City. I planned to stay here and continue to have my great life. But he challenged me, so I went down and I interviewed, and sure enough, I got a job with him as his special counsel. I came home after the offer, and I started to talk about it with my then-boyfriend, now-husband, and said, should I take this job? What do you think? And he said, oh, Kirsten, all you've ever wanted to do since I've met you is public service. You should jump at this chance. We'll see each other on weekends. Don't worry. And I said, okay. So I go down to D.C., and I start working at HUD for Andrew Cuomo. He's the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. I was his special counsel, and I got to work on a whole bunch of issues that I thought were fascinating. The interesting thing that happened in my personal life was absence does make the heart grow fonder. Jonathan did what he said. He came down every weekend. Within the seven months of me serving at HUD, we got engaged. So (laughs) good things happen. Wonderful, yeah. So follow your heart, follow your dreams. And it really set me on a path where I decided I loved serving others and that I wanted to make public service my life's work. And so that gave me the courage to decide a few years later to actually run for office. So it was an important step for me. Wow. So tell us about that first run. When I came back from working at HUD, we came back to New York City because the Democrats lost that election. It was Bush v. Gore. I couldn't stay at Housing and Urban Development because now a new administration was coming in. So I decided to change law firms. I went to go work for David Boyes because he was doing a lot of social justice issues, and I thought that would be fun to work on something more than just securities law. So I joined a new firm. Over time, I really was still just doing securities law, so I wasn't excited that I was reaching my full potential in terms of helping others. I decided I wanted to run for office someday, and I wanted to live in upstate New York, where I was from. I asked my then husband, how would you feel about maybe moving to upstate New York and raising our family up there? And he agreed. I moved to upstate New York with the law firm because I happened to have an Albany office. I was working there for a couple of years, and the more I was on the ground and thought about running for office, I decided to run for Congress. My district was not an easy district to win. It was a two-to-one Republican district. And one story I told in my book that I'll share for your listeners, because it's funny, I asked a friend of mine who was a pollster, his name was Jeffrey, I said, Jeffrey, I want to run for this congressional district. Will you look it up and tell me what my chances are? And he looks it up and he says, well, you have no chance of winning. I was like, really? No chance of winning? He said, yeah, really. There are more Republicans than Democrats. It's two to one. There's not enough Democrats to vote for you. And I said, well, what happens if I run the perfect campaign? Clearly, I can win. And he said, no, there are more cows than Democrats in your district. You can't win. And I said, well, what happens if I raise $2 million and really get my message out? I can clearly win then. He said, nope. He said, there are not enough Democrats to vote for you. You cannot win. I was really kind of baffled, and I said, well, what happens if my opponent gets indicted? I could clearly win then, right? (laughs) And he said, well, it depends what he gets indicted for. Jeffrey had no faith in me at this time, and, and no one else really did either, except for my mother, who believed in me from the beginning. Despite the odds, we decided to run. My husband and I thought, if you really care about public service, you got to at least try. 
And if you don't win, no big deal. You can go back to practicing law and at least you could elevate the debate, raise the issues that you think are important, talk about your vision for this district and what's not going right. And at the time in 2006, the biggest issue was getting out of Iraq. So I really campaigned that we needed a different strategy, a better strategy for fighting terrorism, and it shouldn't be having all our troops in Iraq. And it was the number one issue for a lot of people in my district. When I started campaigning, though, on the issue, only about 30% of the district supported getting out of Iraq. But by election day, 70% supported getting out of Iraq. So sometimes you need to be ahead of the curve and really understand what's at the heart of the people you want to represent. The other issue I ran on, interestingly, was Medicare for All, which now is a very popular issue, but back then it was kind of a very edgy idea. But when I talked about it in my district and said, listen, anybody should be able to buy into Medicare, regardless of how old you are, at a price you can afford, because at least it's a not-for-profit public option. People really liked it, Democrat and Republican. And that's why I think the future of that debate really has to move towards how do we get to universal health care that's affordable, and the best way to do it is through single payer. And the way to get there is start with Medicare for All. Let anybody buy it at a price they can afford. It's how you will get to a single payer system that will be cheaper for everybody. That's amazing, all that you did when you first started, now several years later. Tell us about what your current issues are and why they're important to you. As I've traveled around the state, the stories are all the same. People are really insecure about the future. There's two dynamics going on. I think with the Trump presidency, he's created a lot of uncertainty. He's created a lot of division. We've had more hate crimes in the state than at any time in this country's history. And people are suffering. So when I really delved into what would make your life better, what could make a difference, I can tell you what it is. The first thing is they need access to affordable health care. I mean, it is a existential threat to an individual or their family. If you have a family member who's sick, dying, needs medicine, needs a surgery, and you don't have the money to provide basic health care, if you don't have enough to pay that insurance company, it's hard. And so really focusing on that universal coverage, making sure health care is a right, not a privilege, and making sure it's good and affordable for everybody. So that's the topmost issue I hear around the state. The second issue I hear the most is getting a job, getting the right job, because a lot of people are working two and three jobs, not earning enough in the job they're in, not being qualified or ready to take the job that they do want, lots of jobs being unfilled because there's no one exactly qualified for that job. And so really focusing on how do you create a growing economy for everybody, that's education, it's job training, it's apprenticeships, it's using community colleges and state schools to fit the jobs in the area. And I'll give you one example. When Bombardier needed advanced welders in upstate New York, they went to the local community college and said, if you offer this coursework, we will hire all your graduates. And that's a $70,000 a year job. And so if you were a novice welder, all you needed to do was go to your community college and take that course. We need to amplify that by the thousands across the state, across the country, where our education system can be tailored for the jobs that are available today. Because for a lot of people, they need that education to mean something. They can't be laden with all the debt. So you need to make it free or near free so that everybody can get the right job training for the job that makes a difference. The last issue is making sure that people have that opportunity. For a lot of people, education is out of reach. So affordability, zeroing out student debt is important, access, affordability, and the right job training for those jobs. That can help the economy grow. Legislatively, I'm working on a lot of stuff that could also make a difference in people's lives, not just Medicare for all, but this idea of universal jobs, to actually say, if you want a job and if you're willing to work, you are guaranteed a job. You can do that through the federal government. You can say, we're going to fund the states to fund public service, to actually fund jobs in 
rebuilding infrastructure, public safety, education, healthcare. I mean, there's so much public service opportunity in our state alone. And if you just said to anybody who's unemployed, you will get the training for those jobs, that would transform everything. So I'm working on that legislatively. I'm working on leveling the playing field once you are in the workplace, like having a national pay leave plan. I can't tell you how many families are burdened because when that family event happens, an ill spouse, a sick child, a new baby, they don't have the ability to get sick days or vacation days to meet the needs of that loved one. They might not have any paid leave at all. When you have a new infant, what are you supposed to do? If you're lucky, you might have a mother or a friend or informal care. But if your informal caregiver gets sick and you have to watch your child, you might not have sick days. You might get fired on the spot for that. So not having paid leave is a huge problem for these life events that everybody experiences. So I'm working on a lot of structural changes, not only paid leave, but affordable daycare, universal pre-K, equal pay, raising the minimum wage. Those structural changes will all help the economy. And then I also focus a lot on do we value one another? Because I really think what this country was founded on is the notion that we should care about one another. What makes this country great is that we've always cared about one another, that we care about our brother, we care about our neighbor, that we live by the golden rule. We try to treat people the way we want to be treated. And under Trump, that's really fallen away. It's really changed. I want to restore that commitment to a radical revolution of values. I think that was what Martin Luther King Jr. called it. But something that's different, that's about where we came from and what we really believe in. And if we can focus on that, then we can do even more. Because what makes this country great is that we do care about one another. But what makes this country exceptional is when you care about others more than yourself. And so I want to have a renewal of that spirit of what our democracy really is supposed to mean and continue to work to help others. And so I have a lot of different legislation to do that. And on the space about valuing women, you know, ending sexual violence, ending sexual violence in the military, ending it on college campuses, changing the rules for harassment in Congress. They may be small, but if you're a person being harassed, it's everything. It's huge. And so if you can just help those people fully realize their potential in our communities, in the economy, you're going to make a huge difference. Why do you think it's taken so long to make change in that area? Why do you think that this is something we're still fighting for, that you're still fighting for? I think it's because we don't have women in Congress. It's one problem. I mean, we only have 18% in the House of Representatives. We only have 22 women in the U.S. Senate. And until you get to at least a third, you're not at the tipping point. And we really should be at 51% because that's our reflection of the population. I work a lot in my political life, specifically trying to recruit and organize women to run for office. I started a political action committee six years ago called Off the Sidelines to create a call to action to ask women to participate, to ask them to vote, to become advocates, to run. And if unwilling to run, find a candidate who shares your values and help her run. We've raised over $6 million for women in the last six years, over a million for women of color in the last six years. And I'm recruiting and supporting candidates across this country. We have a record number number of women running right now. And I think that's because of the Trump presidency. If you see what happened after the Women's March, women marched globally with their husbands, their boyfriends, their kids. They have become so active in a way I never could have imagined six years ago, but it's transformative. And now they're running. We have over 400 women running for office. Emily's List is working with more than 25,000 candidates right now. They'd normally be working with about 1,000. So it's exponentially different. It's exciting. So I see a lot of promise and opportunity in the future, and I'm really optimistic. 
How do you think things will change when it shifts in Congress? I think when you have more women representing this country, more issues will come to the forefront, more issues will get done. I think you will pass these sexual violence rules. I mean, if you just look at the congressional rules about how easy it would be for a member of Congress to harass a subordinate and have it impossible for her to get justice, you'd be furious. They have to wait three months before they can report the crime, which includes mandatory mediation, mandatory counseling, and a cooling off period. And then if there is a settlement, the taxpayer pays for the harasser member of Congress, that's outrageous. So simple things. That would be done. (laughs) All these bills would be passed. We'd have national paid leave. We'd have equal pay. We'd have so many pieces of legislation already passed, and we wouldn't be dominating the debate about whether women should have access to contraception. It's absurd that we waste so much time trying to deny women basic civil rights and civil liberties to control healthcare decisions about their bodies. So things would be different. But I hope to get there someday. I think it's important. The prospect of it is exciting. One of the things I love about you is transparency, how Mm -hmm. you were the first member of Congress to put your schedule online and to make your financial records public. And my taxes. And your taxes. President Trump. (laughs) You know, my taxes are online. Yours should be too. So, it should be a law. So when I was looking at that and reading through your schedule, I was overwhelmed by everything that you're doing. And I'm wondering, how do you have time to balance your work life mm-hmm. with a family life? Do you have time for yourself? How do you make it all happen? It's everyone's challenge. Any working parent's challenge is how do you be a good mom and dad and be a good whatever. It's not uncommon for all of us, but I have it frankly, a lot easier than most working mothers because I get to set the rules for my office. I can decide I'm not going to take any meetings before 9.30 so I can take my kids to school every morning. Or I can decide I'm not going to take meetings between 5 and 7 so I can go home, cook dinner for my kids, get them ready for bed before I have to go do something else. Largely outside of the vote schedule, which I have no control over, largely I can set my schedule and, you know, make sure if I'm traveling I spread it out so it doesn't create anxiety for my now 9-year-old or my 14-year-old. I make sure I schedule around their school events and their parent-teacher conferences. And I can do that, but most parents can't. One of the reasons I work so hard on these issues that affect women and families is because people aren't making it easy for them. They're just not making it possible for them to do the things they want to do. And that's why paid leave is so important. But also making sure everybody has sick days and vacation days because you need a day to go to that amazing recital you want to see (laughs) that might be at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and how do you get out of work? I mean, it's hard for people. So I think giving parents and family members just a little more flexibility so they can do great jobs at work, but also be good parents is one of the most important, urgent things we have to do to make the workplace better and also to make sure people can work to their highest potential. If you're constantly putting impediments in the way where they can't meet their family needs, they're not going to be in the workforce or will be underemployed because that's the only way to get the flexibility or hours that make it possible for them to do the caregiving that they might need to do. So I keep it simple, and that's one way I deal with it. I also get a lot of sleep <laughs> for How? all your listeners. How? Go to bed early. Watch less TV. <laughs> if you can. If you can. I put Henry to bed between 8.30 and 9, and I will be in bed by 9.30 reading a book so I can go to sleep by 10. I just really try to get eight hours. And so I go to bed at 10. I usually get up at 6, sometimes 5.30, because I want to go to a 6 o'clock workout class. So I try to work out at 6 a.m. most days because that's my – private time, my individual moments to do something I want to do. I like to go to Pilates. I like to go to yoga. I like to go to spin classes. I've got some great biking classes near where I live. And 
I sometimes get to play tennis and I sometimes get to play squash. I just try to keep my health as good as I can with sleep and exercise, try to eat well, and then the rest falls into place largely because I have the flexibility to make it. So it's important for me to really work for the people who have no flexibility. While we're talking about personal things, I just want to mention your book. I found it so incredibly personal. So I'm wondering, where did you find the strength to be able to be so honest and so vulnerable in your book? So I was asked by the publishers, um, a woman who worked there said, I really want to hear your story. Would you consider doing a memoir-type book? And I said, yeah, I will definitely do that. And how you had the time, by the way, to fit that in while you were yeah, serving. Yeah, I did it almost all <laughs> on my iPhone, just true fact. So Really? Yeah, because when I'm you know, sitting on a, a plane ride or you have to turn off all your devices, I could just be typing out on my iPhone. So there's lots of downtime in your day where you're waiting for something or you just have a few moments to collect your thoughts on an issue. And I just would type it right in and... And I had a great writer to help me. She might just have an hour on the schedule once a week where she'd just interview me about a certain issue and she'd be able to translate that into a chapter that I could then edit. So that made it easy too. But back to where I started, a friend of mine wrote a book about how to write a memoir. And that book was so well done. And it was, you have to tell your story so someone can see themselves in your story. And if you're unwilling to be honest or intimate, they'll never see themselves in your story. I wanted to write a book that Any reader, a young mother, any woman or man that might be challenged in the same way I was challenged would see what mistakes I made and see what worked and what didn't work. So I wanted to create a little bit of a how-to, a little self-helpy, you know, just a little bit of this is where I got it wrong, this is where I got it right, this was really painful, this was okay, so that people could say and understand, you know, she was judged on her looks. If I'm judged on my looks at the office, I can speak up to that boss or push past that boss or ignore the criticism. And just sharing those experiences, I think, makes it more possible that you can say, well, I can also overcome it in the way she did. That's why I read biographies. I read them all the time. And I love biographies about women because I want to say, how did you do it? How did you figure out how to get from A to B? How did you handle when somebody, you know, called you stupid or ugly or pretty? How did you deal with comments that aren't helpful? So I read a lot of biographies. And interestingly, um, I'm writing another book. You are? I am. Interestingly, another friend of mine who works at the same publisher said, we'd love you to write a book about the history of suffrage, women's right to vote but we want to write for children. I said, I'm in. Love it. I've read so many children's books because my boys are now 9 and 14. I've been reading books at night for at least a decade. So I, I said, I'm in. This is easy for me. But to do that project, I read a bunch of memoirs and biographies about suffragists and what they did and what their lives were like and what sacrifices they made and what risks they took. And the year of reading those biographies was so fascinating. I mean, I, I didn't know enough about Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth. I didn't know enough about Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I didn't know who Alice Paul was and what role she... I mean, these are women whose lives were unbelievably difficult. And they did such extraordinary things to make a difference, all for women to have the right to keep their kids in a divorce or to be able to own property or to be able to vote on the things that affect their lives, to have a voice, a real right that's guaranteed and what they're willing to sacrifice to achieve it for us. Really wonderful. So that book's coming out in the fall. It's going to be called Bold and Brave. And it's a story of 10 suffragists and what they did to win our right to vote. 
I'm doing it with an incredible illustrator named Myra Kalman, who I don't know if your listeners know her, but she's on a bunch of New Yorker covers and a bunch of other children's books. One of Henry's favorite books is Looking at Lincoln. And if you buy that book, you'll see how incredible her artwork is. She's done the illustrations. And so it's going to come out November 13th. And I'm going to just travel around the country talking about women suffragists and how awesome they are. Oh, that's so exciting. Clearly, these women have inspired you. Mm -hmm. What else inspires you and what keeps you motivated, especially in these tough times? Well, I have to say what's inspiring me right now are the women and the young people who are marching. I can't tell you how inspiring the Women's March personally was for me, both the first and second one, to witness so many people marching around the globe on all issues. I love that it was intersectional. I love that your sign could say Black Lives Matter or Women's Reproductive Freedom or LGBTQ equality or clean air, clean water or Muslims rights or immigration rights. Like it didn't matter what you marched on. It just mattered that you marched. And I was so inspired and excited. I was in tears. I brought my oldest son with me. He loved it. And then most recently we marched with the kids and gun violence. I brought both Henry, who's nine, and Theo, who's 14. And just watching their faces, their amazement with how many hundreds of thousands of kids were marching on Washington with signs, tears streaming down their cheeks because they're telling these stories about losing their classmates and people they love and seeing how passionate they are, the willingness to do everything to make that difference. That's going to change the country. It's literally changing the world. That's inspiring me. And so if these kids and these women can keep marching, I can keep marching, I can keep fighting, and that we can be in this together in a really tough battle, a very tough battle about our values and whether we're going to stand up for preserving the lives and well-being of children in inner cities across this country, at schools and in nightclubs, in Bible studies, and preserving and supporting the ability to protect people, or you're going to support the greed of the NRA. It's one or the other. Make it a really clear choice. That's what keeps me motivated. You're either going to speak truth to power and demand what's right out of your legislators, or you're going to let the status quo continue, which is literally rigged for the top 1% of America. You're either going to take on these institutional biases or you're not. You're either going to take on institutional racism or you're not. I like the fact that so many Americans are saying we're not going to tolerate this anymore. And it's brilliant and it's powerful and it's exciting for me. So it is all of those things. But on the same token, I also feel like sometimes these problems feel so insurmountable. And sometimes you wonder if you really can make a difference. So for people that are wondering that, what's your response? You absolutely can. Do you think that kid who went to the town hall and looked at Marco Rubio in the face and said, will you stop taking NRA money? Do you think he thought he could make a difference? He's making a difference. Do you think when Emma Gonzalez gets up and calls BS on every excuse every elected leader has ever given for not doing common sense gun reform, she's making a difference. Every one person can make a difference. And I think this era of activism is profoundly different than anything I've ever seen, certainly in my lifetime. And I wasn't an adult during the Vietnam era or during the civil rights era. So for people of this generation, it's our time to be heard. I think we're up to the task. And I think with this Trump presidency, people are not seeing themselves in the policies that he's putting forward. They're seeing these policies to be very divisive and hateful. When you say you want to build a wall, when he says he wants to divide this country and close out communities and 
make fun of kids who happen to be trans by denying them the bathroom they want to choose or somehow devalue our troops who are trans by saying their service is not needed. You can create a fury, certainly in me personally and in many people around this country, that's not going to abide anytime soon, that we are going to fight till the end because our families are at risk, our communities are at risk, people we care about are at risk, and it's not who we are as a nation. The time is unique in the world, and I think there's a call to all of us, a real moral call to be ready for a time such as this to fight hard and to speak out and not give up. And that one voice, you know, for anyone listening, it might be your meme that's so funny that catches the eye of a member of Congress that all of a sudden decides, you know, I've had the wrong view on decriminalizing marijuana. I need to make sure we can make this accessible. You might have the tweet that goes viral that makes it possible for someone to say it's absurd we don't have universal background checks on guns or it's absurd we're not banning assault rifles. It could just be the way you tell your story that in inspire someone to change their mind and do the right thing. So just know your voice matters and you can use it any way you want and any way that makes you happy, but use it because we need it. Speaking of voices, what strikes me about you is that you have such a strong voice. You are so clear on where you stand on issues. No one is going to get in your way. I find that very striking, especially for a politician. Where do you find that inner strength and how can so others do I get that it too? from a couple places certainly from the lives of the women who have come before us who are so inspiring and when you read about I'll just take a couple of these suffragists let's just say Harriet Tubman she was born into slavery she was beaten constantly as a child as a child but her parents told her that she was strong and she was brave. She was very religious. She had her faith to rely on. She not only escaped from slavery, but went back over and over and over again to save her family members first and then other friends and other people she knew, saving hundreds of people across her lifetime. During the Civil War, she was an armed scout. She was a spy. She saved slaves. When suffrage became something she focused on, she was a voice for all women, black and white women, and really transformed the conversation. She was brave. She was courageous. She knew that her voice was important. And so I believe the same for each of us. And that goes to my faith as well. So much of what the Bible teaches me is that we're all called to make a difference. And like different characters and different stories in the Bible that you're supposed to use your talents to make a difference, that if you bury your talents in the ground and don't use them for the betterment and the good of others, uh, that that's really a sin. It's a terrible way to live your life. So I know from these women's lives who came before me, I know from what I feel deeply in my soul that we all are given certain gifts to use to help others. If you spend your life helping someone else, not yourself, you will transform the world. And there's no better, better way to spend your time. And so I have a lot of gratitude. And I take this responsibility with humility, because I believe that that's where all our jobs are, is to just literally fight for others to make a difference. And when you know that that's why you're here on this planet, it's easy. And you don't give up and you don't give in. And that's certainly what I learned from Harriet. Well, Senator Gillibrand, you are making a difference and you are inspiring. And we thank you for all of your service and your work. We look forward to seeing what's next and wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Take care. This is Jessica Lips for Mogul. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.